If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1961, the historian E.H. Carr published a book, What is History?, which explored the act of studying the past and debated whether it's possible to have an objective view of history. Sixty years on, his great-granddaughter, Helen Carr, has teamed up with a fellow historian, Susanna Lipscomb, to edit a follow-up volume, What is History Now?, in which leading authors consider how history can help us make sense of life in the 21st century. Our deputy editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Helen and Susanna to find out more. He started by asking what the book sets out to do, and the first voice that you'll hear is that of Helen Carr. This book... Uh, manifested in, in a bit of a sudden realisation that um, 2021 was in fact 
the 60th anniversary of the original What is History um, lectures that were delivered at Cambridge University by my great-grandfather E.H. Carr. And um, these lectures were then published in a book, and that book has become very well known to anybody who has studied history um, or has been interested in history because it really um, argues that history is interpretation and that is the the, the main point of of the book. And it was really groundbreaking, um, uh, game-changing, quite... um, I suppose in some ways quite an antagonistic perspective um, at, the, at the time that it was it was released, um, but it has gone on to be an incredibly important publication and historians around the world and students of history are very familiar with it. So um, I felt that it was something that needed a bit of a, a, a reappraisal. Um, and this was all before uh, we had the momentous um, toppling of the Edward Colston statue Um, the tragic death of George Floyd. And then following this, there was so much conversation around history. It felt like this was a very timely uh, point to revisit the question, well, what is history? Um, Who does history belong to and how can we talk about it? And, you know, how can we tell it? And what are the ways into history? There have been volumes that have revisited Carr's work since it came out. There was one, in fact... uh, done um, by History Today in the uh, 1980s. And then David Canadine edited one called What is History Now? Without the comma, uh, 20 years ago. And this is <laughs> um, subtly different, not just because there's a, a piece of punctuation in there. But no, it's a, this is a now, but we've got 20 essays in here and around 20 essays. And it's designed to give an opportunity for lots of different people to give their perspective, history is interpretations in this instance, of what history is today. And so people are looking at a whole range of things like Jaipit Verdi has written for us about how can we write the history of disability. Um, Caroline Dodds-Pennock and Lila Backbird have written for us about um, how does history change when you take the perspective of Indigenous peoples. Um, Maya Jasnoff has written about, you know, how can we write the history of empire and various other questions that are being explored. Um, Helen herself has written about the history of emotions. I've written about how you can recover the lost lives of women. So there's questions about how we do history and reflecting on what we've learned in the last 20 years, but what we've learned in the last 60 years as well. And some of them are perspectives on history that E.H. Carr would have shared, but some of them are things that he would not have thought of. There are ways into doing history or um fields of history that have been completely pioneered in the last 60 years. And we wanted to explore those. And it's designed to be something for anyone who's interested in history. So we we suspect this is going to be something that undergraduates in history are going to read, but we don't want it just to be for them. And so we very much um, asked our contributors to frame it, um, to write it as if it's for, for a general audience and they're very readable, um, engaging essays, and they're they're designed to help everybody think at this time. You know, you know, what is history now? Exactly the question. So that, and our subtitle is um, about how the past and the the present speak to each other, and we think that that's crucial as well. That actually, the present helps us reflect on the past, and the past informs how we understand the present, and it's about engaging with those uh, different ways in which it does that. 
And there are so many aspects of that throughout the book. One that I wanted to ask you to start with is about um, E.H. Carr's 1961 book and this book. Are they, to some extent, in dialogue with each other? You mentioned there that the original book was quite controversial at its time. Why was it controversial? And does this book attempt to sort of talk to that controversy? Yeah, I think that it was, I mean, yes, it was controversial. It wasn't the first, uh, the E.H. Carr wasn't the first historian to sort of talk about history being interpretive. And I think what he pushed back against was this idea that we have an accepted series of facts and that's what history is. He references fish quite a lot in his original text because he uses his analogy of, you know, of a fisherman um, and how the, the historian's facts are very much like fish swimming around in an ocean. And it completely depends on what tackle you use, what um, area of the ocean you choose to fish in. All of these different um, reasons could affect the, the facts that you actually you actually pull out of you know, said ocean. Um, and that is, to me, really interesting. And I think that that's something that historians and scholars of history have, have cottoned onto and really worked with. And, and that's why history is, it's such a, uh, it's a discipline that's in constant flux. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. And that's why somebody like Charlotte Riley, who writes in the book on rewriting history and why history always has to be rewritten. Um, that's what she argues so eloquently. So I suppose in a way it is in, in, in dialogue. I think the difference is E.H. Carr was speaking to, you know, he was delivering this as a series of lectures um, at, at Cambridge. It was a, it was, it, it was a very um, academic audience. It was designed to, it, it was designed to speak to the to scholars, to the academy. And what we want this book to do is to open this out a little bit further um, and invite people who have always maybe had a bit of an interest in history um, because they've been interested in um, family history, you know, or who their great grandparents were, and being told um, stories from their from their part from their childhood, or people who are really interested in movies and loved, you know, watching. Gladiator or some of these big blockbuster movies um, or reading or reading narrative history. And I think that, so what we do with, I think what we do with this is we try to, is we try to open it out and, and, and point out that there are many ways into history. And because history is interpretation, various historians, um, you know, people who make movies are allowed to use the history in the ways that they see fit, therefore creating an interpretation of the past. So yes, in some ways, it is in, in dialogue with E.H. With Carr's original text, and it's definitely moved, taking the idea of interpretation and, and working with that. But it's it's also opening it out to a wider audience. And, and that's very, we hope that that comes across in the way that it's, it's written as well, because it's written very differently to the original, what is history. Do you think um, it's got an absolutely stellar uh, list of contributors? When you were planning that out, did you see it as a kind of a manifesto offering a particular view of what history is? Or is there a range of viewpoints about what history can be and can do? It certainly offers a range of viewpoints. There's no party line here. There's uh, uh, you know, a group of historians each putting forward their perspective, their own interpretation. What we did was curate the list of people contributing and we deliberately asked people who are both very senior highly esteemed, well-known, um, and those who were beginning in their careers. So, you know, a PhD student, for example, amongst the, those contributing, but also those who are both inside the academy and outside the academy. 
So we have people like Emily Brand writing about uh, family history. Of course, she wrote her wonderful book about the fall of the House of Byron. And she is someone operating outside the academy, whereas we've got somebody like Mary Rubin, who's a professor who is, you know, has been at sort of the top of her field for for many years. And we've also got people um, writing on both sides, the Atlantic, um, American scholars and British scholars, particularly, um, you know, we would, there is... We couldn't do everything. There's lots of lots of people we would have liked to ask to contribute. Um, the book had to be stopped at a certain point. <laughs> and there's lots of topics that we haven't covered that we'd love to cover. Maybe we will one day. Um, so it's not we're not suggesting it's any by any means comprehensive or represents any you know every possible viewpoint. It certainly doesn't, but it re- represents a, view, a range of views. You mentioned um, that this book has its origins before some of the things that thrust history into the headlines during the past sort of 18 months. Obviously, it has now become this enormously hot button topic. Do you think that history has always been political? Uh, I think that that it's peaks and troughs. I think that um, at the moment we're living in a period of time where history is particularly political. Um, But I think we can look at that in a positive way for this book, because I think what it has done is it's brought history to the dinner table in a way that it's it sparked conversations with family, with with housemates, with friends um, over, you know, Zoom drinks. You know, what do we think about this? What are your views on on statues? What are your what are your views on this? Um, you know, the the so called culture war. The history is in in the news so much more. You know, what is it, what does it mean to erase history and we hope that this book will inform people to make up their own minds about about where how they look at history and how they feel history can inform our present so i think yes there are i think it is a particularly political time and this isn't something that was ever originally intended but we hope that you know that it this is also coming out at a at a positive time because it enables people to have those conversations whilst having something in their arsenal to have them and to be able to understand. And we hope that it's inviting people saying, you know, history isn't a discipline that um, is is an ivory tower discipline. This is something that everybody can engage with. And you can have those conversations at the dinner table or or at the pub, um, you know, hopefully at some point. And and it's all relevant. And and this book can help to to inspire and to and to educate. I mean, I completely agree, but I also think that the historical perspective is that we often have a myopia about the present. So whilst history is very politicised at the moment, we could easily think, oh, it's more politicised than it's ever been. But actually, I'm sure history would come up with lots of examples of when it has been just as politicised in the past. But what Helen says is right about this, giving you space and scope to think about these issues in the context of a range of ways of doing history. You mentioned statues there, and that's one of being one of the flashpoints um, among many. And there's been a lot of debate and concern about the idea that by removing statues, for example, we're somehow rewriting history. And I wanted to ask you about this a little bit, about whether you think that it's right to rewrite history, whether um, that's something that we inevitably do, what your thoughts are on that debate, I suppose. So I would say that history is always rewritten, that each generation... Each generation rewrites history 
for itself, we have a different perspective about the questions that we're putting to history, that we're putting to historical records and texts about the sort of fishing expedition we're going on, in other words, in each generation. And there's also, of course, the possibility of finding new evidence that we didn't have before. But even without that, I think we have different perspectives. Uh, We ask different things of the past. For example, in the period I work on, you have Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard. 20 years ago, she was being written about as someone who was, you know, up for it and promiscuous and asking for it and all that stuff. She's a teenage girl. One has a different perspective on her following Me Too, hashtag Me Too. And I think that the present does inform the questions we ask of the past. So I think that history is always being rewritten. Statues and the whole debate around that, there's a very worthwhile discussion to be had about whether statues should be taken down, whether there should be plaques affixed to them, whether these people should be commemorated in any way, or whether you can have an informed historical discussion around statues because they're present. But that's nothing to do with whether you're writing or rewriting history. It's a completely different debate. Yeah, I I completely agree with with Susie. And I think that history is is always being rewritten because the historian who is writing the history is always informed by their their present. So I think we could never sort of compare ourselves to some of these, you know, if you look at this 19th century antiquarian historians, where a lot of this, the original material that um, we might start with today on kings and queens, that's that's when a lot of this was was originally compiled. Or you could go back to the to the 16th century and and you could look at um Chroniclers, we could go back to the 14th century, the period I work on, and look at the look at what the chroniclers said then. You know, their 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 opinions of the people that um, that they studied in the past are, are wildly different to what we what we might consider today. And especially um, talking about Catherine Howard, like in regards to some of the the women at court in the 14th century. So I think historians are always, they're always informed by their presence. So it's very important that we rewrite history and we revisit history because that's going, that's part of the conversation. And that's what makes history quite, well, quite a creative, a very creative discipline in that you can, you can revisit and you can look at evidence in a fresh way and in a, and in a new light. And it's not about erasing what's been already written. It's just about adding to the conversation. And crucially, I think we need to say, as E.H. Carr did, that this isn't about not striving for objectivity and not striving to reach truth, in inverted commas, I suppose. It's that we recognise that we cannot always do that, that that there are limits to our ability to do that. We recognise that we approach history subjectively. We're not saying that that's an ideal. We're just saying that that is true. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, the irony of saying that's true. But the, we're saying that whenever we approach history, we will be approaching it through our own subjectivity. We have no other way of approaching it. So we're always going to be coming from our present, whether we think that's a great thing or not. There's a re- what for me was a really potent example of this uh, in the book, which is uh, you bring up the the ruler. I have one of these rulers of lists of kings and queens. Can you just talk us through why that particular ruler is so illuminating in this regard, I suppose? The ruler of rulers. Yes. Um, Well, I think the way we look at it is a ruler of rulers, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting analogy because it's, it's very austere. 
it's hard, it's very masculine, it's very authoritative, uh, it deals with the people at the top. But what you're, what you're really missing is the space between the lines, between the centimetres. You know, what about all the people and the events and the, and the lives that happened in between those, those kings and a few queens that are listed or prime ministers, depending on, depending on what rule you have? It's, there are so many people that have been lost in history or, or whose voices have, not, have, have been marginalised, but they still existed. And I think a lot of attention has been given to these these kings and queens, and not that that's not important. It's very important. Both both Susanna and I have written about um, magnates and kings and queens, but it's about trying to use that idea of okay, we don't have all of the evidence and the facts that are able to necessarily support what we think, but we're going to look at we're going to have a discussion about the spaces in between and the people and the lives that may have been lived in the events and the, and the social context of the time with what we do have available. And that's why, you know, striving for objectivity is very important, but there has to be an element of subjectivity. Otherwise we lose all of these voices, which are important in the context of history. History isn't just made up by the monarchs on, on rulers. And even if we're thinking just about the monarchs, I have my ruler here and it doesn't mention Matilda. It doesn't mention Jane, who even English heritage uh, tea towels now put Jane the first on there. Um, and there's a big debate about whether Jane was queen or not. But the point is there's nothing contested about the list on here. Obviously, because it's a ruler, right? There's, there's a limit to how much nuance and complexity you can have on it. The other thing noticeably about it is it's actually a list of English monarchs. It says it's British history rulers. But they only become British from about James I onwards, so there's that problem. So there's a very English perspective. The Scottish have a very different list of monarchs. And I suppose it gives you a sense of, quite literally, the straightness of history. We've got, you know, we, we have a chapter in this book about queer history. It's the straight, it's the sort of non-complex list of the past. And we're suggesting, actually, the past is a lot messier than that. It's a lot more... Uh, tricky, and it's it, a bit more sinuous as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's a, we, we really hope that it, it draws people in to see that history can be such a, a wonderful debate and a conversation, and there's so many different aspects of history that one can find themselves going down a rabbit warren with, and there's all sorts of, of treasures to be found once you do. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. A key thread of this book is acknowledging and addressing some of these gaps, some of these silences. What are the challenges of trying to write these stories? Um, And I wonder whether you could both talk about the particular chapters that you've written for this book in that regard. Well, I've written about trying to recover the lost lives of women. The truth of the matter is that the vast majority of people who ever lived, but especially women who ever lived, left no trace on the record for posterity. They are the sort of billions about whom we have nothing. There are, however, some of those billions about whom we have a tiny bit, maybe a single sheet of paper or they appear in a, in a fragment, these archival slivers, as they've been called. And it's about trying to see that whether one can access their stories through those things. So, for example, historians have used Inquisition and court records to look at women's lives in the past. Historians of witchcraft, like Lyndall Roper and Robin Briggs, have drawn on witchcraft cases to explore those and... Obviously, court records are giving a version of events that has been mediated by the court scribe and um, has been um, possibly translated rapidly from first-person pronoun into third-person pronoun, which does provide problems when sometimes when you're thinking about how to translate it. And that's the sort of record I've worked on. But then sometimes you might try and get at the lives of people who are even less present in the records for example, of the estimated 12 million Africans who were taken across the Middle Atlantic, there are very, very few extant passages of autobiography. Um, wonderfully, Diane Patton uh, did a piece of work that I mentioned in this uh, based on a letter from a now freed enslaved woman, um, previously enslaved woman in the late 18th century. But you, th- there are very few ways to look into people's lives and can and how does one do that without rehearsing stories of violence done unto them sometimes it's about the type of histories that you can look at so Sarah Knott wrote a wonderful book about the history of mothering the thing about mothering is that most of it's not done on the page and so you know if if the person mothering if has to dash off it might be that she can write and has noted um Baby is crying, so I must go. But it, but most of the time, 
Your hands are full, let's be perfectly honest. And that's the period where you're not writing down about your experiences. So there, there, there are real difficulties. And so one of the things I'm posing in that chapter, which it's drawn on other people's research in, in large part, is to think about creative ways into writing the history of women's lives when we're having to work from such fragments in the archives. And that's what I explore there. Yeah, I so I write about um, the history of emotions and similarly to um, to Susanna, it is this sort of sliver of information that that you might be able to find in the archives. But it's very rare that you find something that that literally stipulates an emotion. What is so difficult about writing about the history of emotions is that we can barely write about emotions or know emotions in the present. I mean, we never know what the person that we are sitting opposite is is thinking or feeling really unless they're able to completely articulate that it's very difficult to to know what is happening emotionally even within oneself sometimes in the present so how on earth do you apply that to the past and something that's really interesting to me about the progression of of emotions through history is that the word emotion is um, was proven by Professor Thomas Dixon at Queen Mary um, is a relatively new term. People didn't describe themselves as emotional in the past. Actually, in a way, people in the past were, uh, were, were, were had much more clarity about their emotions. They had sensations and they would be able to define their sensations in a different way. Um, to how we do today. So, you know, today I might say I'm feeling really emotional. That's a far broader um, term that seems to be collectively understood in our in our in our modern day than it would have been, you know, 300, 400, 500 years ago. Um, so I think words are very important when you're looking at emotions and the, the meaning of words, the way words have changed over time. For example, the word nostalgia is now we might be nostalgic for something. Oh, I'm really nostalgic for that time that I had at university and had so it was just such a wonderful time in my life but actually historically the word nostalgia was a sickness it was you know there there are records of people even dying of nostalgia so these these things have changed over time and um my particular the, the particular area that I'm looking at is medieval emotions um particularly in response to death and Yes, what an epidemic, the Black Death, which um, is something that I'm sure we can all relate to today, our emotions around that. Um, And interesting characters came out for me, like Marjorie Kemp, who was living in the 14th century, is a very famous woman in the 14th century. And she writes about emotions in a very uh, visceral and palpable way. And she talks about tears and and expressing her emotions to the point of being very noisy um, and, and almost irritating those around her. And I, so I think as a historian, you're looking at not only the way Marjorie is describing her emotions and what she might be feeling, but you're also looking at what the responses of others are to Marjorie to get an indication of what might be happening on the grander scale of um, of, of the emotional history of the, of the 14th century. And you can also apply this to, to other centuries uh, in the 18th century, there was a trend for these grand history paintings and these these depictions of military tragedy. Um, and I, one of the, the paintings I look at is the is the death of General Wolfe and how this had cues around the cues outside the Royal Academy to come and see. And there there are descriptions of people fainting and weeping, looking at the the, the, the visual depiction of the death of this this hero. Um, of the Seven Years' War. So it's about looking at different 
sources that might indicate what a wider reaction is. So it's it's taking it's taking an emotional lens to a source that you might have just looked at for a visual analysis or to give an understanding of the context of the time, but actually reading into it with an idea that you're looking for a representation of feeling rather than anything that's necessarily physical. You mentioned uh, sources there. I was really struck by uh, a line in Dan Hicks' chapter where he says, in the 2020s, history takes place in the streets as well as in the libraries and the seminar rooms. I wondered if we could talk a bit about who gets to write history and um, whether we need to broaden out what history is in that sense. I think that we believe, Helen and I at least, I can't speak for all the other contributors to this book, we believe that history is something that is written by scholars, but it's also something that, as Raphael Samuel said, is the work of a thousand hands, and that there is scope for histories being devised as you're thinking about your family history, but also in local museums among communities. We deliberately have asked Gus Kaisley Hayford to contribute an essay on how museums open the door to the past. We're interested in the fact that there's a history in heritage, engaging with scholars of literature like Islam Issa who contributes to this because we think that actually there's, a, there's ways in which those two subjects particularly interact as well. So I think by having non-academic historians present here and those who represent areas such as heritage or the museum sector, that we want to demonstrate that we think that history is not just for the few, but for the many. I think as exactly what Susie says, history history is for the many, not the few. And it is a discipline, it's a subject that everybody can talk about, write about, do do whatever they, how, interpret in however way that they feel is necessary. So, for example, even with artists, so, you know, there was the interpretation of, um, of Mary Wollstonecraft that was um, very um, present in the, in the news because certain people took certain things from it, some people, certain people loved it, certain people really loathed it. So history really is for everybody to engage with in whatever way they wish to. So, you know, whether that's creators of documentaries or dramas on Netflix, um, or whether it's taking a character from history like Hilary Mantel does, Thomas Cromwell, and creating this wonderful fiction and imagining his internal dialogue. There is no, there's nobody who is better or worse to write about history. And it's just the ways in which people choose to do that and different styles of doing that. Some things certainly do belong to the academy and that is where you have this um, incredible body of research that's going on that's, that's, that's hugely important. Um, but then there's also very creative things happening too. So I think both lend themselves to each other. I think it would be fair to say, uh, I wonder if you agree with me on this, Helen, I certainly, think that, I certainly think that there are better or worse histories. I think that people can produce a history that is more faithful to the sources and or less so, um, that has more respect for the context in which those were produced, that um, doesn't or less, um, that doesn't take... Uh, sources and use them out, you know, lines out of them out of context or allow assumption creep or, you know, all the sort of biases that might affect one's judgment. You can write better or worse histories, uh, but 
it would be our contention, I believe, that you can have somebody who's outside the academy writing a history that is succeeding on all of those fronts, just to, and you can have someone inside who's not, and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we have you know, we have an essay by Alex von Tunzelman talking about why history should be at the movies or could be at the movies. And that's that might inspire people to go on and study history and and conduct their own research from from scratch. So all of these all of these histories are in dialogue with one another and they all contribute something. Are there any histories or stories that we've not highlighted in this conversation that you think we really should? I mean, we open with an essay from Peter Frankaban about why history, why it's so important that histories are global. And there is now so much work in terms of thinking about approaches to history that have that global perspective. Um, it demands an awful lot of skills. It demands you know, linguistic skills and it demands an awful lot of reading and mastery of a range of subjects. But it is a change um, from more pay, uh, parochial histories, perhaps, that we have written in the past. At the same time, we have people writing about micro-histories <laughs> and the importance of those as well. So we've got both ends of the spectrum. Um, and we've got pe- you know, people like Bethany Hughes looking at prehistory and um, the, the ancients, and, and that, you know, as well as very modern history. Um, Rana Mitter reflects on, for example, how 20th century versions of history as seen from China and uh, and Japan are so important to shape the present. So I think it's it's about a real range of approaches, geographical, um, methodological, <laughs> all sorts of different styles of approaching history and trying to show the great breadth of it, really. Yeah, and also histories that have been have been marginalised. So, as Suzanne has already mentioned, um, Jai Verdi's essay on, on on disability and how we have viewed disability in the past and how that might have shaped how we view it now. Um, and also Justin Bengry on queer history. It was a fascinating insight into into the lives of queer people who were unable to um, express their sexuality and also. Yeah, we've got also an essay by Onya Kanubia, um, who talks about black black Tudors and how actually before the um, 18th and 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, black people were, and people of colour were immersed within Tudor society. Um, so it's just, it's revisiting some of these micro histories as well. And we've tried to balance that alongside people like Bethany and Peter talking about much wider periods of history and scopes of history. Would you like this book to change how readers and how people, how the public in general, I suppose, view history and what history can be? Yes, absolutely. Um, we think, we hope that it intrigues people and, and helps people feel that their views on history and the way they look at history or the, what they want to read changes. And it, it, we hope it invites people in. Um, rather than saying something, you know, along the lines of, oh, I just can't, I can't get on with all those facts and remembering dates, etc. That's something that has literally been said to me before. And it's a, it's a, we, we really hope that it, it draws people in to see that history can be such a, a wonderful debate and a conversation. And there's so many different aspects of history that one can find themselves going down a rabbit warren with. And there's all sorts of 
of treasures to be found once you do. I hope it makes people feel that history is more generous and expansive than they had hitherto realised. I expect that they'll find the book provocative in some ways uh, that is intellectually stimulating and other ways that they completely disagree with. And those are both responses that I think are valid and to be encouraged. Is it impossibly broad to ask the question, what do you think the purpose of history is? It is a very broad question. And it also immediately suggests, well, immediately we've got a problem with terms, right? What do you, what's the, what pur- the purpose of history? Do, do you mean the past that exists irrespective of the discipline of history? Do you mean the purpose of studying the past? Because those two things are often conflated. When people talk about rewriting history, what they're actually worrying about is that somehow we're going to change the past <laughs> or we're going to change, you know, or change the accepted version of it, perhaps. If there is a purpose, then is it for us or is it a purpose for the people of the past, I suppose? So anyway, so there's lots of questions around definitions. For me personally, which is I'm narrowing your broad question down, I think the study of the past has the ability to make one more empathetic, to care about people other than oneself. I'm sure that if you spend some time thinking about women in the 14th century, you care more about your neighbours than otherwise because you know you're you're engaging with the mentalities of people other than yourself. Um, And I think we have a real tendency, you know, as humans to be pretty solipsistic. So I think there's that. And I think that history also poses a series of challenges to us about how we think we should be living what's the right way to live? Because it gives us a number of examples, many, many examples of ways of people which live differently. Again, it's about, there's a lot of ego deflating that should happen in history, I think. And and the study, but the study of it has all sorts of other purposes. I mean, I could say to somebody thinking about whether they should study history at university, go and do it because it's going to teach you how to think, right? It's going to teach you how to critically assess things and to work out whether you're being you know, sold a pup or fed a lie. I mean, seems to be quite useful qualities in today's world. So I think there's there's all manner of things that history has a purpose for, but I, I guess I've told you what I think it has in terms of my for myself. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with, with Susanna in that history does make you think and it makes you uh, look at things with a critical eye, even when you're, you know, you're fed news um, daily or you read something. So where is, you know, what is the agenda of the person who's writing it? What, uh, where has this come from? Um, what are other opinions on this? It's, it's a very useful discipline just for the everyday practice of just living within, you know, a modern day society. But I, history for me is also about stories. It's about the lives that have been lived and the events that have happened and the, and the very tangible and visible objects or places that have been have been left behind to look at so for example for me you know treading the ground of places of great you know as well as there's once this great castle here or a great palace or you're literally walking the same route as um, a pilgrim did um, what were their experience was this the same view that they had so being able to step into the shoes of people of the past in very special um, circumstances I think is is quite a unique and beautiful experience. I think it's an experience to enjoy history in that way. Um, but it's also being able to watch the progression of history and um, regression in certain places as well. But you know, how did we? How did we as a 
you know, as people, how did we, how did we move forward in the world? How do we move forward in time? What did we learn? What did we not learn? You know, discoveries, great discoveries that shaped, shaped the way we live every day now. Um, and the history that is still happening as we, as we speak, you know, the, the invention of the, of, the, of the vaccine against COVID-19 is, is a massive example of, of medical history in the making that we have all just lived through and experienced and watched unfurl. And I think that looking at the past in that way can also be a way of being able to understand it in the present. Dan Snow always says to that question of whether we've learned the lessons of history, it's like we have traffic lights, we have seatbelts, we have vaccinations. Of course, we've learned lessons from history. <laughs> thank you both so much. They were great answers to a kind of dubious question. So thank you. Um, I was really struck by, uh, in Peter Frankopan's chapter, which we've mentioned about the importance of global history, he draws an explicit line between the Black Lives Matter protests and the sort of role of history and historians in dealing with the realities of the past. And he argues that it's partly because of their failure to do so that we have the current situation politically. That gives history a lot of power, doesn't it? Um, That's quite exciting, I'd say. The histories we tell are generally based on the accounts of the powerful in the past. So it's people who have had power in the past who have been able to be literate for a start, who've had the, you know, who've been able to be in a position to contribute things to an archive, to be in a position to um, have those things kept. And their perspectives generally are ones which justify their power. It's very much true that the histories we tell, which just spin off the the narratives of the powerful, will tell us how we ended up to be ended up in the situation we're in, in a way that doesn't allow for the history of those who've not been powerful in the past. And it's absolutely true that if we don't face up to those histories, that we will end up in situations as such as we've had. It is true that the US has come to a time of reckoning with facing up to the realities of the legacy of slavery, that the legacy of the enslavement of so many millions of people did not end when slavery was abolished, that it has had continued to have, the ripples of it have continued to play out across time. And a failure to recognise how that still impacts on those societies is ultimately a choice to believe a narrative of history that was written by those in power. So Peter's completely right. And it history and how we tell it is powerful, which of course is why it's one reason why uh, our current government is making such a fuss about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going back to that question of, of um, rewriting history. We're rewriting history, but also in that process, we must look at who are the people who wrote it in the first place? Who were the people who had the privilege to write this down? Not the busy mothers necessarily, <laughs> not, um, no, not the illiterate. What, were their, what was their agenda? Um, so, it, you know, that's why checking this, this power and checking the words of the powerful, the people who wrote this history in the past, is, is, is incredibly important. It's all part of, of the process of understanding the past is, is revisiting the people who wrote it and, um, and why and what they were trying to articulate and how much truth is there in that. 
A version of this interview will appear in the October issue of BBC History magazine. Susanna and Helen have also both contributed articles for our website on subjects including witchcraft and the medieval power broker John of Gaunt. You can just go to historyextra.com and search their names in the search bar to bring those up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when David Potter will be speaking about the power of disruptive forces in history. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.